2: To begin with,
0: <laughs> everything.
4: Putting on a great show is the most important
2: thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public
3: Media. I'm Jim DiRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I review U2's latest stadium tour and trace their path from art rockers to music giants. Plus, we'll review the new album from underground metal heroes, Anvil.
1: Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new mixed speaker system, the next-generation boombox for iPhone and iPod. Online at alltechlansing.com.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news.
3: is the Beatles of course from Abbey Road you never give me your money well (laughs) (laughs) we sure do they're wrong because uh, a lot of people were giving the Beatles money in the last week the rollout of their compact disc catalog once again remastered for a new generation of listeners for the first time since 1987 a big success story on the North American charts over 600,000 copies sold in one week that's major sales for music that is basically uh, forty years old. Leading the way was that album Abbey Road, sold eighty nine thousand copies. If it counted in the Billboard Hot two hundred, it would have been the third ranked album of all albums released in that particular week. So the Beatles, even though uh, they have not put out any new music in quite a long time, remain extremely relevant when it comes to selling their stuff. I- ironically, I thought I just have to
2: inject this Vera Lynn. The uh, the heroine of the radio throughout World War II mm-hmm. outsold the Beatles on the English chart. She's ninety two <laughs> years old. She's even older, and I guess the Brits think cooler than the Beatles.
3: What's going on here, right? I mean, the stuff that's you know everything old is new again. Uh, the Beatles certainly seem to think so. A couple of points about these CD reissues, Jim. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, not only the numbers here, but what exactly they are selling. The big question you and I have both been getting is: Are they worth it? Should I go in here and purchase these CDs. Well, a couple of things to consider, uh, because you're talking about a major outlay of money. You're talking about the reissues encompassing the Beatles' 14 albums, the 12 original studio albums, plus Magical Mystery Tour and the past Masters compilation of non-album tracks. They are retailing at a price of $18.98 each for the single CDs and for the double discs, double that price, so $30 plus if you buy them in box set form, the stereo box set, it's going to set you back 260 bucks. Now, the only way to get these same CDs in the prized mono version is by springing for the box set, which is $300. And it's interesting because this is the one thing that the Beatles collectors have been crying about for a long time, saying we'd love to hear these pristine, mono versions of these classic albums up through the White Album, because that's the way the Beatles essentially were recording them. According to the Beatles themselves and George Martin, the Beatles didn't really care about the stereo masters of these records. It was an afterthought. They were an afterthought. And if you listen especially to those early albums, Jim, it's very crude. There's a panning where they take the vocals and put them in one channel, and then you'll hear the, all the instruments in the other channel. And it dilutes some of the impact and some of the power uh, of the music. As an example, to illustrate what we're talking about here, we're going to look at the With the Beatles album released in November of 1963, newly reissued. Listen first to the stereo version of Money. now here's the mono version of money Depending on what kind of a system you're listening to that on, it may or may not make a difference to you. Right, right, and, right. And Jim, one of the arguments that I would have about these fine uh, remasterings, I think they sound brilliant. I mean, I, there's there's no arguing that the music itself is is spectacular, but it really depends on what you're listening to this music on to fully appreciate what's going on here. If you're going to yep. listen to this on your iPod or through your car speaker system. You may want to think twice about whether or not you want to reinvest in some music that you already have. If you're that guy in the old Maxell commercial yeah. in the
2: chair perfectly situated behind the 10-foot tall speakers that are so powerful they're going to blow your hair back. Right. Yeah, you know, invest in this. But but that, you know, means you have a $10,000 stereo system, right? Yeah. And so the money involved here to buy both of these boxes, upwards of $500 the mono and the stereo, mm-hmm. is just absurd. The philosophical argument, Greg, is that, you know, for those of us who who uh, came up with the Beatles, I mean, I I was a little too young right i wasn't born till 64 but i mean i personally have bought beatles on vinyl i've bought beatles on on a track i mm-hmm. have copies of the red and blue best of albums on right. a track i i bought all the first beatles cd's Wow, you know, how many times are you going to expect this? We're moving to a model in the music industry where, you know, the Neil Young box set or some of the video games, you know, have broadband access where you can update the music, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes for a nominal fee, sometimes for free, as new stuff is released. I mean, like, shouldn't you have gotten a coupon at some point once you spent (laughs) your first couple of hundred dollars on Beatles music that, like, in the future, if we
3: make this sound better, we'll, you know, you can update it for a discount? And if you are going to sell it to us again, you've got to give us something extra. In this case, there are no real extras, other than the fact that the sound is a lot better. That's significant. There's no doubt about it. But they could have easily fit those mono mixes on the discs with the stereo mixes and given it to us for the price of one disc. Instead, you're making us buy it separately, and not only that... Perhaps the most prized aspect of this you can only buy as a $300 box set. I mean, I think that's just poorly done, and I think that's a big diss of their fans. So, Greg, just to wrap this up, because everyone's been asking us, buy it, burn it, trash it, how do we grade these boxes? I I think if you've never heard the Beatles, you you should buy this stuff. They were a good band. If you already have this, you don't need it again. You burn it.
2: Greg, we have two music lawsuits that have been in the headlines in in recent days to bring people up to speed on. Number one, Ellen DeGeneres. And her talk show—I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't uh, know if yeah. you watch it every day. Every show, she dances to a song. Yeah. She's not a very good dancer, but she's uh, enthusiastic. She's enthusiastic. Three million viewers watch the Ellen Show, right? She has not been paying for the music rights for any of the songs, and now uh, the four biggest record companies are suing her for you know copyright infringement for playing these songs without permission. More than a thousand tunes, everything from Thriller to Good Vibrations. The ironies here manyfold. Ellen about to replace Paula Abdul as a judge on American Idol. One of the record companies that are suing her uh, have put out all the Idol records. And, uh, you know, it's, this is a woman who hosted the Grammys. Yeah. And you got a major network television show you don't know, you got to pay for music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other lawsuit, just to recap, uh, you know, we've chuckled several times at the idea of Joe Satriani, the superstar uh, virtuoso guitarist, suing Coldplay, allegedly uh, ripping off his if i could fly instrumental for their song viva la vida there is now a settlement there's no report of uh, how much money is changing hands but coldplay does not have to admit a mistake or guilt in -hmm. this case but the two parties have come to some terms
4: but kurt didn't the thought that you would never write another song another feverish line or riff make you think twice That's what I don't understand, because it's kept me alive above any wounds. If only you hadn't swallowed yourself into a coma in Rome. You could have gone to Florence and looked into the eyes of Bellini or Raphael's portraits. Perhaps inside them, you could have found a threshold back to beauty's arms where it all began.
3: That's Jim Carroll with a piece called Eight Fragments for Kurt Cobain. You may have heard that uh, when he performed it on MTV Unplugged in 1994, soon after Kurt Cobain died. Uh, We're mentioning it because uh, Jim Carroll himself died uh, recently of a heart attack at age 60. Who was Jim Carroll? If you've heard of him, you probably have heard of him because of a 1995 movie starring Leo DiCaprio called The Basketball Diaries based on a book that uh, Carroll published in 1978 based on his experiences as a high school basketball player growing up in New York in the 60s, a world consumed not only by sports but by drugs and poetry, and bringing all those elements together in this beautiful and harrowing diary inspired by Jack uh, Kerouac, one of his early heroes. It's up there with
2: Hubert Selby or or some of the greats of kind of beat memoirs.
3: And, uh, you know, Carroll was a contemporary, uh, you know, coming up alongside Patti Smith in that New York uh, art, poetry, music scene of the early 70s. He later moved out to the West Coast and then came back to New York to participate in the uh, latter days of that CBGB punk scene. Inspired by Patti Smith, he, he, he uh, started converting some of that poetry into music and released three albums at the onset of the 80s, most famously an album called Catholic Boy, which a lot of people saw saw as the final salvo of the punk movement in New York City mm. uh, from that era, and it is most famous for a song called People Who Died, which chronicles true life stories of Carroll's um, upbringing in New York and the unsavory world that he uh, trafficked in he went on from that to become a very well known and well respected spoken word performer and poet and later on in his career circled back to rock and roll but really the the essence of his career was contained in that first album and that one song and here it is in honor of Jim Carroll People Who Died on Sound Opinions
4: I the clue he was 12 years old Listen up in Manhattan, flying Vietnam, bullet in the head by the old Dodreno on the night that he was wet. They were two more friends of mine.
2: People who died by Jim Carroll on Sound Opinions. Jim Carroll himself dead at age 60. We're going to take a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And when we come back, Greg and I will look at the past, present, and future of YouTube. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg cott And that is U2 with the song Breathe from their latest album, No Line on the Horizon. It has been opening every show of every concert around the world they've been playing so far on their 360 degrees tour. Crossed Europe, 88,000 people in Wembley Arena, finally got to America, started in Chicago. You and I, Greg, were there at Soldier Field as they played two nights to 66,000 people a night. You know, when you think about it, there are only a handful of bands from the 70s and the 60s who are at that superstar stadium-filling level. You know, there's the Rolling Stones. Springsteen can do it if he wants. There's Jimmy Buffett for whatever reasons. But nobody from the 80s and 90s who were contemporaries of U2, although they were kind of neck and neck with R.E.M. for a long time, mm-hmm. nobody since the superstars of the 70s has been able to fill stadiums. U2 is still doing it. The question is... Is it worth doing
3: yeah well you know when we went to this tour the first thing you see as you walk into the stadium is a contraption a stage that is in fact bigger than the stadium I mean it literally (laughs) towers over the upper balcony in some cases the claw a 90-foot tall custom-built stage there's three of these things that they are dragging around the world with them topped by a 54-ton cylindrical video screen which is unique in my experience of going to see a show i've never seen anything quite like it as i said fans are calling it the claw personally
2: i think i've seen better spaceships built out <laughs> of uh, duct tape and pvc piping by the flaming
3: lips but whatever it's supposed to be a relic from another world it is and uh... it, it requires a fleet of personnel five hundred people are being trucked and bused around the country hundred ninety buses and trucks to move this contraption around And get all the people around that need to put it up. Another two thousand in each city to run the show. It is a huge, huge mega corporation we're talking about here—the modern-day U2. You and I have both been naysayers about U2 in the past on this show. We have both been naysayers about stadium rock on this show. It is going away. Let's face it—the industry is shrinking. The idea of these big, bafo bands being able to fill stadiums around the world—that era is ending. Well, and good riddance. I don't think a rock performer really is giving a rock performance if he or she cannot see the eyes in the last row. And I think what we're really talking about here, Jim, is spectacle. The idea of not so much a rock show, but something else. Something where the combination of the spectacle and the technology and the venue and the hugeness of the event combines with the music to create something else. And very few, I would say maybe one band does that with any degree of success, and that might just be U2. Because even though I hate the concept of seeing rock shows in this kind of a setting, I think U2 still does it better than anyone ever has, really. And there's still a few moments on this tour, even though I'm not a complete fan of everything they're doing, That are worth seeing, that are unlike anything you'll ever see in a big rock show ever again. Now, see, I would not
2: recommend that people spend that kind of money. If you were lucky enough to get a $30 ticket on the floor, one of the discount tickets intended for fans who are willing to stand in the pit, uh, you know, fine, okay, great. The band is taking some chances. It's playing seven songs a night from No Line on the Horizon, an album I liked very much. I gave it an enthusiastic buy it. They're not playing the freakiest Daniel Lenoir, Brian Eno songs, but I thought they were taking some chances. But much of the stadium is priced at $252 a seat, plus egregious Ticketmaster service fees. And that's absurd. You know, and then the audacity on top of all that to show us a video with Bishop Desmond Tutu urging us to do our part to solve the problem of poverty in the third world and to cure AIDS. If you two had charged $25 a ticket for every seat in the house and then urged us to give another 25 on our own to these causes, I mean, fine, but... Jeez, that's just ridiculous.
3: Yeah, well, as Bono said uh, in the midst of that show the other night, this is no place for modesty. So yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's a band that's over the top and proud of it. We want to look at how did they get to this place? Yeah, because it wasn't always so. It w- well, you know, in some ways it could be argued it was, but... This was a very different band with at least four different phases.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: I mean, you know, when these young lads came
2: together in 1976, at the instigation, it must be said, of the then 14-year-old drummer Larry Mullen Jr., it was with a different goal. They were inspired by the Sex Pistols and the explosion of energy in London in the summer of hate. There was no saving the world in London during the height of the punk movement. Larry put up a sign on the billboard at Dublin's Mount Temple High. High school, and among those who answered were Adam Clayton, soon to be the bassist, mm-hmm. this guitarist who I believe was already losing his hair, Dave Evans, soon to become The Edge, and this outspoken, if diminutive, fellow, Paul David Usen, who decides, No, I am Bono Vox, Latin, of <laughs> course, for good voice. I guess you can argue the pretension was there from the beginning, Greg, but when I first heard Boy in 1980, when it was released, and then the records that followed, October in 81, War in 83, they really didn't sound like anything else. I think that's the beginning of post-punk. It was taking the energy of punk, to a large degree, the political consciousness, the influences, you know, as I said, U2 was... Strongly influenced by the Sex Pistols. You could hear Velvet Underground in there. You could hear a lot of the New York punk influence in there. The rhythms were stripped down. Things were moving. Things were things were minimal. But at the same time, they added something. It, it was a minimalism, but it was ambient. The production on those early records by Steve Lillywhite, who would go on to do eight records total, he still comes in and out of the career, has throughout their 30 years. Yeah. He breathed. You know, this, the parts were really simple, but there seemed to be a lot of space. It was like they were playing on a mountaintop or
3: maybe in a huge, empty cathedral. Well, I'll give you two bands, Jim, that I think they were coming straight out of and that I think don't often get credit for influencing those early U2 records. First of all, The Edge's guitar sound, Hale is so revolutionary. Go back and listen to Keith Levine, yeah. of Public Image Limited. Absolutely. And you will see where The Edge got a lot of his guitar sound. And the other band I think is Joy Division. That mm-hmm. minimalism that you're talking about, you too was listening to a lot of that as well.
2: I remember the first time I saw them at the Palladium in New York City. Bono was already doing that kind of. Uh, crowd rousing stuff uh, you know at the, mm-hmm. at, the, at the end of the show he was waving a white flag yeah and you know impressionable young jim Deer goddess i think it was 14 or 15 i thought that, you know this is a little silly i'm kind of <laughs> being moved by this but this is just a little silly what is this guy excited about but there were parts of the records that showed more this is a part of you two we don't see as much anymore on that very first album 1980 boy on cat dub third track in. It was really part of two songs. It would segue live as it does on the album into Into the Heart. But here's a song that has very little. There are a few sparse lines of vocal. There's this haunting melody that that Bono delivers. The biggest hook in the song is wordless. And there's all this space around it. The guitars sound like a vibraphone. Or maybe it's just the echo of the guitar. You, You don't even know what's really carrying the song along. It's Gaelic on Cat Dub for The Black Cat. And uh, Gavin Friday, one of uh, Bono's closest buddies, swears that this is about an affair that Paul David Ewson had when he was on a brief split from his wife he's now been married to uh, to ally for well, decades mm-hmm. right but this was about an affair uh, an affair apparently gone wrong there's a haunting quality to this song that has nothing to do with the stadium shaking bombast we often get this is my favorite u2 this is the u2 that eno and lanois would amplify later mm-hmm. but there it is on the first album here it is on sound opinions on cat dub by u2
3: Cat dub from U2 from their 1980 debut album, Boy. Those first three albums, kind of a trilogy, Boy, October, War, you know, where the anthems started to uh, really become a big part of their sound. New Year's Day, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And then, you know, where do you go from there? Once you start waving that white flag around and you bring those big, you know, soon-to-be stadium rock anthems into your lexicon, Can you get even bigger from there? Once you start singing a line like gold is the reason for the wars we (laughs) wage... You're getting a little far out on the limb, you know? Yeah. They retooled, to their credit, in, in 84 with The Unforgettable Fire. Here is the entrance of Brian Eno, who had already made a reputation producing The Talking Heads and and working as part of that new wave post-punk scene in New York.
2: You know, Eno told me once, Greg, that uh, in the first hour of sales for The Unforgettable Fire, mm. you two sold more records than every record he had sold
3: up to that point in his career. <laughs> no doubt about it. For a lot of people, this was their introduction to U2. I mean, the first three albums certainly had an impact, but with the song Pride, In the Name of Love, their, their tribute to Martin Luther King on this particular album, they took on a whole new audience in the United States, and the venues jumped from those bigger clubs and theaters into the arenas, and the music swelled to fill up those places. Eno, I think, had a role in bringing up some of that atmosphere that you were talking about in those early records. He amplified that aspect of it. And I think what makes The Unforgettable Fire such an interesting album is the fact that they were experimenting with some of this more textural and atmospheric stuff uh, and maybe dialing back on some of the anthems. But what bothers me about it is the Bono world-conquering personality yeah. is here in force and those american influences start creeping into the music in a big way that elvis presley in america song or 4th of july those are the kind of things that you know are bad seeds for future yeah. <laughs> growth in this band
2: gotta say, some people say that the the first three albums, that trilogy we were talking about, uh, has dated badly. Because it does sound very 80s in some ways, but to me, the second trilogy, Unforgettable Fire in 84, Joshua Tree in 87, and Rattle and Hum in 88, they're unlistenable to me. They have dated uh, so much, and it's so much about uh, the flag-waving now brought up to a stadium level, and it's just so pompous and ponderous, and Bono beating on his breast, where the streets have no name and bullet the blue sky and you know save the world i can't take it man
3: 90 percent of you two fans are gonna are gonna argue with you on that because especially with the joshua tree it's still their most iconic album for a lot of people And, and let's face it that opening one two three punch is still the core of just about every show they play to this day where the streets have no name I still haven't found what I'm looking for, with or without you. You know, if we don't know anything about you two and you just listen to those three songs, you'd have to say, hey, this band has got something. Problem was that the tours that started to grow around these albums, and as, and as documented with Rattle and Hum, the band really got full of itself. I mean, some of the stage pattern, I, I think the music <laughs> yeah. is less embarrassing in some ways than some of the things that are coming out of Bono's mouth. This is a song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles, and now we're stealing it back. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff like that, that's the annoying part of, of U2 in the late 80s. And to their credit, I think they kind of read their own press and they did. said, you know, we need to go
2: away for a well, while. Well, I think there were two things happening. We're talking about the beginning of phase three. It is one of the bravest and most daring reinventions, I think, in rock history mm-hmm. in terms of a band saying we are going to toss out what we have become, as you said. They're filling stadiums and arenas after the uh, Joshua tree. They have become rattle and hum, they've become self important. The alternative era is happening. You know, it's no coincidence the Octung Baby the beginning of phase three of U2's career, comes out in 91, the year punk broke, the year of Nevermind, the year in the UK of of Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. I think they they felt the tide shifting, and they realized how silly they had become when, when you see the band in Rattle and Hum. And now the Messiah Bono the Messiah save the world (laughs) becomes Macfisto an alter ego on stage which is basically a combination Carnival Barker Las Vegas Lounge Lizard and Satan because he's got devil horns right and both the music on Octoon Baby and the stage show that would follow Zoo TV were just absolutely brilliant
3: And I think that stage show is inextricable from the album. In order to understand ak Baby, you needed to see the Zoo TV tour that followed it, because it made everything come together. And you're right, that Mephisto character started showing up at the encores, and you're going, what the heck is he doing? <laughs> and, and he was poking fun at himself, and it was like, wow, these guys can actually laugh at themselves. And they that realized first. Kind of the absurdity of it. You know, the fact that the album was made in Berlin, it was kind of their version of Babylon. Okay, here is this ultra-Christian, very earnest band going into the heart of darkness to make this album and completely disrupting what they were all about. Now, now, Eno had been working with them since Unforgettable Fire,
2: like we said, and he still works with them to this day. He has songwriting credit on several songs on the new album. But on Achtung Baby, they gave him more of a free hand than I think they ever had. Mm -hmm. He told me that he would come in, he literally had the power to erase anything that they'd recorded in the last couple of weeks, he'd visit every few weeks, that sounded too much like U2. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the corporation around this band, as you said, they're touring now with 500 people, has a vested interest in making sure U2 sounds like U2. They had the courage to invite Eno to erase anything that sounded too much like what they'd done and force them to go in a new direction.
3: I don't think there's any doubt uh, for us, uh, I I, I don't want to speak for you, but Octoon Baby is is the masterpiece of their career. But a lot of people give short shrift to the albums they made subsequent to that, and I would really like to make a case that this is my favorite face of U2 ever. I think Pop is an incredibly <laughs> underrated record. <laughs> You're nobody, the only one in the world that thinks that way. Nobody will agree with me on that. you can <laughs> reach, but you can't grab it.
5: You can hold it in You can
3: Part of it was, I think it was that song, Disco Tech, which was the lead single, was kind of a red herring. They had the village people in the video, and everybody thought, oh, this is going to be their dance record. Mm-hmm. you Because know, they had Howie B, this uh, then-hot DJ, yeah. producing the record. But what that record really is, is these surreal little atmospheric ballads and these kind of distorted meditations on... How this neon, glitzy, technology ridden life is going to destroy what is left of our humanity. And in yeah. a lot of ways, it is kind of their equivalent. Of Radiohead's OK Computer, which was obsessing about similar subject matter. I will never forget them closing that big 97 Stadium tour, that Pop Mart tour, with the song If You Wear That Velvet Dress from the Pop Album, which is this really disturbing kind of song. And I thought it was such a beautiful and unexpected moment to get from this huge band. I cherish that. I don't think anybody else besides me liked it. But I just thought that this was the U2 that I invested in emotionally. And there was a little detour in the 90s when they made this album with your hero, Jim Eno called Passengers, which was a very Eno-esque concept. It's a great record. They were creating imaginary soundtracks for unmade movies, and they were basically creating little plot summaries, and you can find them in the liner notes of the album. One in particular, they had imagined this Michelangelo Antonioni Vim Vendors collaboration called Beyond the Clouds, and they created this beautiful song for it called Your Blue Room, and in fact, they played it for the first time the other night in Chicago. It's the first time they've ever played it live. I think it is one of the greatest things U2's ever done. It is the antithesis of what a lot of people think U2 sounds like. It's got this haunting organ part by the edge, and Adam Clayton actually sings the first verse, or yeah, actually yeah. sings speaks the first verse. So it's a, it's a beautifully haunting, atmospheric song that I think symbolizes this most experimental phase of their career. Here it is, Your Blue Room from U2 on Sound Opinions. It's time to
5: go again To your blue room Got some questions to ask of you clean skin is clean
2: That's Your Blue Room by U2 in The Passengers, guys, with Brian Eno on Sound Opinions. You're right, Greg. Fascinating stuff. Unfortunately, in the new millennium, U2 turned away from the experimentation, Mm -hmm. made two albums that were kind of U2 by numbers, Uh, going back to a little hodgepodge of everything they'd done before, and then really surprised us with No Line on the Horizon. I, in particular, loved it. Uh, You were enthusiastic about much of it. On tour, they're trying to be something for everyone again. Mm -hmm. And that's what inspired us to look back. If you want to comment on U2 or anything we talk about on Sound Opinions, give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our review of the new album from influential heavy metal rockers, Anvil.
5: Give me two more chances, you won't be denied. When my heart is where it's always been, my head is somewhere in between. Give me one. Then I'm gonna make
1: Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new mixed speaker system, the next-generation boombox for iPhone and iPod. Online at alltechlansing.com.
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're hearing a little bit of Anvil with a song called Axe to Grind. And yes, this Toronto band does have a bit of an axe to grind with their new album. It's called This Is 13. It has been available on their website for a while now, but it is getting officially released because of a lot of uh, news and buzz surrounding this band that has been around since the 70s. The main reason that there is new interest in this toronto heavy metal band is a 2008 documentary film called anvil the story of anvil it sounds like uh, some spinal tap ripoff but in fact it is a very loving documentary there is humor in it but it, it is in a charming way about these heavy metal lifers who have basically devoted their life to this style of music without commercial success and become extremely influential in spite of the fact that they have had no real notice outside of the metal community. They were one of the precursors of what became known as speed or thrash metal, playing a not only heavy style of music in the late 70s out of their home base in Toronto, but a fast brand of this. And uh, later on, bands like Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth would capitalize on this sound and make lots of money doing it. Anvil never got their props, but they never quit either. And uh, the two core members in the band, the two founding members, Steve Cudlow and Rob Reiner, are still there. Cudlow, the vocalist and guitarist. Reiner, the drummer. Cudlow and Reiner are once again at the heart of This Is 13. We're going to give you a re- review of the new album in a second, but let's hear a track from it first. Ready to Fight from Anvil on Sound Opinions.
5: You never fail
2: That is Ready to Fight by Anvil on Sound Opinions from their new album. This is 13 which is uh, getting an official release and getting a lot of attention now because of the success of Anvil, exclamation point, the story of Anvil, that documentary. You know, Greg, it struck me, Bono was talking about this is going to be the best night of your life, and this is a community, 66,000 people in a stadium gathered to see you two. You know, the fact that that these guys in Anvil and countless bands like them in many genres, not just heavy metal, but punk or ska or or the underground dance scene, you know, they are part of communities, and, and, and they have day jobs, But there are people, uh, you know, across the country and in some cases around the world that support and love this music. Anvil deserves that support and love. I mean, this is a meat and potatoes Mm -hmm. metal band that had some elements of innovation in bringing in the speed and thrash. You know, the lyrics can be kind of silly. Lots of talk of tempered steel blades uh, flashing (laughs) in the night and such. But this is a band that plays with conviction and and plays with heart and with soul, and if it doesn't have tons of originality, it at least means it, man. I gotta say, on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, it's a a Burn It record. It's a good record.
3: Well, it's the kind of record they would have made back in the late 70s, early 80s when they were developing the sound. That is because uh, they are, in fact, reunited with the guy who produced a lot of that work, Chris Sangaritas. Basically, the sound is unchanged since then. They are not making any pretension to being a new band or reinventing their sound in any way. They're basically doing the same thing on their 13th album that yeah. they have done on the 12 previous records. And they're not a band on the level of, like, <laughs> Motorhead. <laughs> they're not on that level, even though Motorhead has essentially made the same album over and over again. But, you know, it's interesting, the the similarities between Cudlow's vocal style and Lemmy's. You know, you kind of wonder which came first. I mean, mm. Lemmy obviously had that run in Hawkwind, but Cudlow's style is very similar to that sort of gruff, uh, no-nonsense style of singing. Not for nothing They call them lips. (laughs) Exactly. But the guy who really kicks it into gear for me is Reiner. Uh, There is some rumor, and maybe you would uh, know better about this than me, Jim, but supposedly Reiner was one of the pioneers of that double kick drum setup that has become de rigueur in metal circles. He's a great drummer, no doubt about it. I don't know if he invented that. (laughs) But anyway, it sounds great. The lyrics are nothing to write home about, but then again, the music is what it always has been, which is great speed metal. I love that sound. These guys deserve your money. Come on. (laughs) So you're saying buy it. I'm saying buy it. I'm saying burn it. Enthusiastic either way you look at
2: it. Uh, Mr. Scott, what do we have on the show next week?
3: Next week, Jim, we have a review show highlighted by new albums from Pearl Jam and Monsters of Folk, which includes My Morning Jackets, Jim James, and Bright Eyes, Connor Oberst. Greg, as always, we have some thanks to say on the way out
2: Town Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, And our executive producer, our fearless leader, a guy we've seen dancing in his office to The Ellen Show, is Tori Southside Malatia. <laughs>
5: My heart ting a ling ting a ling goes telephone, and I know that the fireworks will start.
3: On sound Could opinions, everyone's pure, a critic, so give us a call, producer, call on our hotline 1 859 1800.
1: New messages.
3: A- hey guys, this is John from Salem, Massachusetts. I just wanted to check in about the uh, Vivian Girls review. Based on that review, I bought the record. And I thought it was going to be right in my wheelhouse. Melancholy songs, echoey production, punk rock ethic, girl singing. But I had a little insight after I gave the uh, album One Run Through. And it's an insight that's been 20 years in the making, and I'm a little ashamed it didn't occur to me now. And that is to wit. If your drummer sucks, no matter how good your songs are, no matter how much enthusiasm you've been in the performance, if your drummer sucks... You kind of suck, too. I'm so sorry, guys. They don't quite do it. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
0: I just wanted to thank you for playing Green as a desert island desk. I love that album. I still remember when I bought that album. I had read an article in the, or a review in the Village Voice, and then I uh, happened to be in Iowa City for some reason, and I found it in a small record store, and then played it for weeks on end. I never understood why they never became big. Anyway, thanks a lot. My name's Linda Ziemer. I'm in Chicago. Thanks.
3: Uh, this is Robert Krause. I'm from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I just wanted you to know that this show you did last week with what you call the dissection of Big Star, I would call a discussion. I want to thank you immensely. I've rarely been as deeply affected by a group of songs, particularly uh, the single September Girls. September. simply brings together the best of what I like in rock and particularly folk rock. A great melody a chord progression that one can actually follow but a fierce and kind of mind-blowing ambitious bass line Again, thank you Bye
0: Hi, this is Anita calling from Philadelphia and I'm calling about show 198 which was your dissection of the classic Radio City number one record album by Big Star. You know, I came in to work on a Monday morning and I was feeling kind of low because I just found out that one of my favorite writers, Jim Carroll, had died. And, you know, to add to the complete summer of death that we've been having. So I put on my headphones, dialed up your podcast, and started listening to the Big Star feature. And I just want to say that I was almost crying in my cubicle, myself, by the time he played Tender Girls, even though it was probably the 20,000th time I've heard it. And every time I hear Big Star, I am more awed by them, and I fall in love with them more every time. I just want to say thank you, Jim and Greg, and Big Star, for proving to me that I can still be moved by music. Thank you very much. No more messages.
2: To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
3: This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance.
0: Oh, the new doctor is dropped at gorgeous. <sighs>